0: I feel like we need to respond some more of where God has been leading us and to declare to the Lord that His Word would come true. We just experienced a 2 Chronicles 5. We always quote 2 Chronicles 7.14, but the foundation laid first is 2 Chronicles 5, where when the priests went into the holy place, it says they came out undivided, became one sound, one voice, with instruments and song, and that the presence of God was so thick that they could not even minister before the Lord the Shekinah glory came. And then in Second Chronicles six seventeen, Solomon, in getting ready to dedicate the temple, says to the Lord, let your word come true that you have spoken. God speaks to us in that triune holy place because he's a triune holy God. Isaiah 6 has is already been quoted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Holy Spirit. A threefold cord cannot be easily broken. God is a never in disagreement with himself. His word, character, nature, and spirit are always in agreement. And God has already spoken His word over you personally, over your generation, and over this city, over an Antioch again awakening to this nation from this very place. As Lou was sharing, I I was reminded that in the late 90s, the Lord spoke to me when there was a ministry that was being birthed for all of New England a media ministry that the Lord told me because I didn't have a savings account and the Lord told me to take everything in my checking account and give it towards what was being birthed out of Boston for New England and then when I was speaking to a group of churches in New York City in 1999 an Indonesian pastor came to me who says he was working with with students here in Boston and he begged me it was a Saturday I will fly you from New York City on a shuttle to Boston. Would you please come? And I thought, well, I don't know if I can have time. I have a flight out on Sunday night from New York City. He goes, please, we can make it happen. And so I got on a plane that Sunday morning, flew up here, ministered, and they were late. The plane was delayed. And I remembered they stayed and worshipped until 2 in the afternoon till we got there. And I recognize then that the students from various campuses here in Boston were passionate and hungry for more. And that is a sign to me, an encouragement to our generation. Psalms 110, 2, and 3 From the womb into the youth, there shall be an army of volunteers for the day of his power. That's because God has spoken his word over you and over this generation. And no matter what the fodder is and what the world says, no matter what they have declared over you, that is not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord over you shall come true because God has already spoken. There are times and moments throughout history that God calls forth voices of courage in their generation who will love God more and love people more than they love themselves. You see, while men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. While we as men, or women, as we as men, want high and exalted places, or pursue high and exalted places, Jesus, the most exalted one, left the highest of places to pursue us. And that's the example of us as believers, that it's not about us. As we sing the songs, it's easy to sing the lyrics to, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Those are great lyrics, but the reality is, God is calling us to a place of greater, ultimate sacrifice that really is not a sacrifice if we have our perspective correct. As Brian was sharing this afternoon, I was reminded of the words of David Livingston. Livingston Zambia is named after him, the great missionary. And he used to say, why is it that when an earthly king commissions us, we consider it an honor? But when the king of all kings commissions us, we call it a sacrifice. You see, we become living sacrifices laid on the altar of God, Romans 12, 2 and 3. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Why? Because we serve a triune holy God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We lay ourselves on that altar, and you consider what happened in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 17, when he says, Let your word come true that you have spoken. And the very next verse, Solomon says, Who do I think I am? Duckstring or paraphrase. Who do I think I am? To think that the God that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain would dwell in this place that I have built with my hands. In the eyes of man, it was the greatest wonder of the world. Built with the cedars of Lebanon, with all the best jewels and gold and silver and bronze, it was with, the, with great excellence, this great place was created for God. But even in all of that, Solomon knew that even that place with all of its glory and when the seven wonders of the world, so to speak, and all the known leaders of the world came to see what Solomon had built for God. They were impressed with the building and the structures, the institution, when Solomon recognized this is a great place of excellence, but who do I think I am to think that the God that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain would dwell in this place we've built with our hands. Nonetheless, he offered a sacrifice on the altar in that temple. And it says that God, and as he humbled himself and cried out to God, that God's Holy Spirit fire consumed the sacrifice on the altar and the glory filled the temple. So it's not the altar or the institution that is holy, but the sacrifice placed on the altar in the temple of God. How much more of value are you and me who've been purchased by the very precious blood of Jesus And we now, the living temples of the Holy Spirit, are far greater value than the temples built with hands of men. And how much more when we offer ourselves living sacrifices on the the altar of God. That means of our time, our talent, our resources for the sake of our generation. When we lay ourselves on that altar as living sacrifices, it's an honor and a privilege because the King of all kings, the heavenly king has commissioned us for our generation and our time. And then his Holy Spirit fire comes and consumes us and his glory fills our temple. And how much of greater value are we than Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 6, and 7? And that's what God is calling forth. God has spoken of this generation long before we were even born. And I believe that God's word that he has spoken over Boston, over New England, all the things you've been declaring are, is for an appointed time, and God has not forgotten his promise, and God has called each of you for this moment. There is never a coincidence with God. There was a time when being invited to go to Australia. At my own expense, I went because there had been someone I had led to the Lord, an athlete that had been traveling around the world and led him to the Lord. And I went to Australia because at that time, Youth for Christ and Church of Christ and the Baptists and Assemblies of God were all amazed at this guy who they knew gave his life to the Lord traveling through America. And they wondered who this Japanese American was that led this guy to the Lord. So I went. And I spoke in all the schools and universities, junior highs and high schools in the region, the second largest region of that state of, of Australia. And who would have thought that, that God was going to produce the fruit he did? I was just a young whippersnapper at the age of 25 or 26 just doing whatever God said to do. I'd already given away my cars, my homes. I gave everything away, left the fitness business, and felt like God said to give everything away. Not sell it, but give it all away. And I literally lived out of a suitcase because God knew that I was one who aspired for those high and exalted places. And he's not asking all of us to give up that kind of thing, but for me, he called me to that more than a few times because God wants to make sure that my heart stays right before him and that really is always about him. So I went to Australia, and the last night, we were going to take an offering in a big civic center. We are going to do a crusade that night, and all the people that heard me throughout the schools were coming and I went to the pastors and I said, I know this sounds crazy. God bless you. <laughs> and I, knew, I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I feel like there's so many people here that aren't even saved who are coming out of curiosity because I've spoken to schools this week and the university. And I, I just feel like we're not supposed to take an offering for me. Because they were going to take an offering at the end of the week to pay all my expenses. Now, in the natural, it sounded crazy. And So that day and that night, I chose not to take an offering. I came home penniless, bills to pay. But all these years later, 20-something years later, that person I led to the Lord is now an executive for Compassion International, travels all over the world. Pioneered a church, one of the fastest-growing Baptist, spirit-filled Baptist churches in that part of Australia. And when they brought me back again about three or four years ago, we had a pastor's retreat, and 150 pastors began to share their testimonies. The largest Church of Christ, the largest Baptist, the largest Assemblies of God, the Anglican Church, the Uniting Church. And I began to get their testimonies. And it all went back to that visit, that one week, where many of them gave their lives to the Lord, their lives to the Lord that week as young people who now are senior pastors and pastors and ministries all across that region, 150 churches of various denominations. In God's eternal perspective, it wasn't about an offering. It was about the willingness of of a vessel to say, Lord, I want to be obedient to you at this moment and offer myself a living sacrifice to you. I believe we are always sowing to our future. The fruit that we pick today and the harvest that we receive is always because of seed that was already sown. Charles Finney used to say, Revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. See, the miracle isn't in the fact that you plant the seed. The miracle is in the fact that God, when you plant the seed, after you tilled the soil and plant the seed and water it, that God takes the miracle of that seed, causes that seed to die in the ground, then to bring forth a sprouting forth and multiplied harvest. Our act is an act of obedience. The great Campbell McAlpine, when he was 90 years old, we asked him, how have you been able to stay the course and serve God all these years? And he says it's simply a nine-letter English word called obedience. And in the middle of those nine letters is three letters called D-I-E. I learned to die to myself every day. And 30 years ago, I'll be 30 for the 25th time in a couple of weeks. And I'm Asian, so I keep my age well. I know I only look 30. But 30 years ago, this year, is when I was called by God at age 25 to go into the ministry. To leave the fitness business, to leave everything I was doing, to leave the things I thought I was going to do by the time I was 30. And the Lord called me to himself over a best friend being killed over a cocaine drug deal. I was living with a girl in sin, professing to be a Christian, and God called me, as Bethany has been saying over and over these last two days, consecration. As Lou says often, the Nazarite call, there's a place that others may, we may not. I don't judge others who can't live where I am, but I'm asking God to take me deeper in Him in consecration and higher in expectation, not with judging others, but God letting me judge myself. And that my life would be an example for him, that his light would so shine in me that it would draw others close to him. Based on Matthew 5, that says, let your light so shine, God speaking to us, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father in heaven. So the first prayer is our prayer, 2 Chronicles 6, 17, that says, God, let your word come true that you have spoken... And then we're able to pray, because of that, because of Christ in us, we can say, Lord, let your light so shine in me. Not to bring glory to myself, but that your light would so shine in me, it would draw others close to you and bring glory to my Father in heaven. So when God called me to himself, it was a simple word. When I, I said God, I called out to him and he said, don't call me Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. And I said, Lord, but I know, you're, I know you're the son of God, so that makes, makes me a Christian. Now, I know we can get into all kinds of theological debates about was I already saved, was I was backslidden. I like what Michael Brown says, how can you backslide unless you frontslide? But that moment, I realized God was calling me to a place of accountability, and that's the key. My whole life, gone to Sunday school, when I needed God, when I had a gun put in my face, God, I need you. When I was overdosing on PCP, God, I need you but then went right back to the way I always was. But something happened at that moment in the middle of my depravity that God heard something authentic when he, I said, Lord, I know you're the Son of God, so that makes me say." the Lord spoke to my heart and says, even the demons of hell know who I am, what makes you any different, so don't call me Lord anymore. And that's when I said, Lord, if you can do someone, something with someone like me who has broken your heart and brought shame to your name, I'll make myself available to you." It wasn't because I was smart, I was a high school dropout, I lost my potential wrestling and baseball scholarships to, to university because I, for, for various reasons, lived on freight trains for a while up and down the coast of Washington, Oregon and California hitchhiking, going to give plasma twice a week so I could eat at a fast food restaurant, asking for food when restaurants closed down. Sitting in a park, I could only play three st- chords on a guitar, but people felt sorry and they started throwing money at me. Oh, I got straight A's going through school. I loved school, but yet I dropped out with one credit to graduate because of my pride and my arrogance, and I lost every potential of scholarships. Ultimately, went back to school and went from the Michael Brown says so I went from my PhD to I mean, from LSD to PhD. But God even showed me in that because my desire to to learn was great and he began to deal with me about do I want a piece of paper on the wall that says I know about him or do I really want to know him? So a simple word of availability and God began to do a transforming work as I let him do a work in me. And every day it's just been simple obedience to God because simple obedience to God is the highest form of worship. The first time worship is ever mentioned in Scripture is not in context of singing or in context of, of instruments. It's in obedience to God. So the highest form of worship is simple obedience to God. And since he is the Alpha and the Omega, I, I need, to, need to keep it simple. So he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. And so I've learned to walk every day simply in making myself available to Him and walking in simple obedience to Him. The A, the O, availability and obedience, Alpha and Omega. I've even made a song in my head when I'm going through it. A-O, to remind me, availability (laughs) and obedience. And I have to pinch myself at times. On November, I'll be in... Doing, renewing of vows at a wedding for some celebrity from, with the L.A. Lakers and, and with um, uh, George Lopez. and My wife used to be in the music business, and so she, I told her to not disassociate. Now that, as Winky Prattney says, God takes you from Egypt to your world, takes you into the wilderness to get the world out of you to put you back in the world. So if we know who we are in Christ and have a depth of consecration, we can be an impact in the world. I found myself pinching myself as we're going to do this wedding and the celebrity is going to be there. And then I think about the times I've sat with Muslim presidents and they let me pray over them in Jesus' name. And one time on seven minutes of national news, this one particular Muslim president repented for the sins of his nation and said, let me quote your Jesus. Forgive us, for we know not what we do. After hundreds of Christians, churches have been burned down and vandalized. Because they needed a scapegoat, just like the days of Nero, that they needed a scapegoat. So Christians are easy scapegoats in some places. But if we come with an opposite spirit, that we don't hate those who hate us, but we come back with an opposite spirit and let his light so shine in us it would draw others close to him. I had a a young man who was a a gay political activist and a a well-known DJ on secular radio, and he hated me. Because I was on the streets till 2 and 3 in the morning in the 80s and early 90s talking to kids on the streets and transvestites and prostitutes and runaways and, uh, and those in the sex trade. And, and uh, we'd be out to 2 or 3 in the morning talking to them and those with HIV. And, and he hated me because he had his perception of Christians. And one day he called me on a Christian radio talk show where I was a guest. Changed his name and he kept slamming me and calling me a bigot and hate monger and all you Christians are all alike. And finally I said, is this so-and-so? And he said, yes. I said, where are all your friends when you really need them? And he said, our friends, we cut for each other. We take care of each other. We cover each other. I said, really, last month when you couldn't pay your rent and your light bill, where were your friends? He goes, how did you know about that? I said, I found out. And last month, me and a few of our volunteers took up an offering together and we paid your rent and light bill anonymously. The night before he died of AIDS, another young man who came to the Lord through a dream, and in that dream, and, and Lou one time called me after 9-11, and, and I was on the way to Scotland that day going to the airport, and he says, Doug, and I could, could hear your voice, Doug, and I'm going, yeah, I'm in yeah Lou, what, what are you doing? I'm going, I'm on the way to, to Scotland, he goes, do you realize how prophetic this particular book you wrote was? It was out of print at the time. And I said, I said well, what do you mean? he goes, because in that book, in the, September of 1998, my book was out of print. Steve Hill and Michael Brown said it was more appropriate in 1998 than when I first wrote it in 1990. I should republish it and update it and send it out. So in September of 1998, three years before 9-11, I prayed for a month with my publisher, put a new cover on it, rewrote it, updated some stuff on it, but the cover was the Twin Towers with water and fire underneath it. And Luke called and said, you need to give away 100,000 of these in New York City, nine months, 11 days after 9-11. I said, 100,000. Thinking to myself, calculating, how much is that going to (laughs) cost? We ended up giving 30,000, I think, away. But there was a young man who found out He was HIV went home and had nightmares and sweats. In the dream, God shows him, reveals himself to him and said, when you wake up tomorrow, I want you to go to the nearest church. Tell them what I'm revealing to you, that, that I'm, your way, I'm the way. And he showed him this particular uh, dream and that of somebody taking him across a river called Jordan. He wakes up, he went to, to a local church in Alvin, Texas, and says what happened. He's HIV, he had a dream, and, uh, and he wanted to give his life to the Lord. So they led him to the Lord and said, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to give you a book. Gave him a pre-published version of my book. It wasn't even spelt right, didn't look right. Gave him that same book called Who Will Cross the Jordan? It later became known as The Time to Cross the Jordan. He looked at the Jordan, that was the river in my dream turns the cover over and says, that's the the Asian-American that was in my dream that took me across the river. (laughs) He became one of my sons in the Lord. So the night before this other gay political activist that I paid his rent and his light bill died of AIDS, I was out of town, so I asked Bill Small, this other young man who came to the Lord through a dream, to go and visit this other person. And because of the act of kindness that we did, with an opposite spirit. He was able to lead him to the Lord before he died. I shared that story at a large church in another part of Texas, and a woman comes to me, an elderly woman comes weeping. She says, was his name such and such? And I said, yes, ma'am, it was. And she said, that was my son. I had prayed and prayed that my son would give his life to the Lord. So you never take for granted or for coincidence what God's divine purpose and appointment is for you at any given time. Every sacrifice you make is making is sowing to your future, for a future harvest. Revival is no more miracle than a crop of wheat. God is about to bring a harvest, and we get to participate. The miracle is in the fact that we till the ground, we plant the seed, and God's miracle is He takes that seed, causes it to die, and then causes sprout for us to bring in a mighty harvest together. But our responsibility out of simple obedience to God is to seek his presence because there's a corporate attack on the name of Christ in this generation. But God's word still is true. And as Solomon said, let your word come true as you have spoken. God has already spoken his word over you, over this generation, over this region, over a revival, over an awakening, over, over a release of an army of volunteers for the day of his power. That's not too difficult for the God that the heavens of the heavens can't contain. The issue is for us aligning ourselves with him and getting in agreement with him and saying, God, it doesn't matter what all my peers and what others are saying or what others are doing. It doesn't matter what Hollywood is saying and the media. It doesn't matter what people write about this generation. I want to be part of that prophetic generation. Some have called it a John the Baptist generation, Elijah generation, Deborah, uh, uh, Daniel, Joseph. Look, I believe God is doing something in a cumulative cumulative way in the fact that that in those days, there was an anointing on each individual. I believe God's putting anointing on a generation, on a whole generation. As John the Baptist prepared the way for the first coming of the Lord, he was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the coming of the Lord. But there is a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no longer is it one voice crying from the wilderness, but it's a corporate sound. Do you hear it? A corporate sound of a generation that's crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. A generation who will say, Lord, let your word come true as you have spoken. What's your name? Seth, Seth, God hasn't forgotten his promises over you. There's been some distractions and some choices in your life that have kind of pulled you back from where you know you need to be sometimes. But God hasn't forgotten his promise. And his word over you is still going to come to pass. You can't change your past, but the decisions you make every day have determined your future. There was times when you were a young boy that you felt like God and people didn't understand you because you felt this sense of destiny and you still sometimes don't comprehend it. But God is saying, I've spoken over you because I've spoken over your generation. God's word is coming true. And as he comes true over you and you and you and each and every one of us and then he puts us together, there is a corporate anointing over this corporate attack on the name of Christ. There's a corporate anointing over a prophetic generation preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. It's not a sacrifice, if we get a right perspective, to serve the great king, the heavenly king who's commissioned us. I got married for the first time at age 52. Had never been married. When I gave my life to the Lord, no distractions. I didn't expect God to make me wait that long. But there was a little girl named Ashley, and she was six years old. Her mom was a single parent. She wanted a daddy so bad. And after a Bible study one night, they came, and we all went out with a group of us, and I said, Ashley, you're six years old. Someday you're going to be seven. What are three things a little seven-year-old wants for her birthday? And She said, I just want one thing. I said, what's that? I want a daddy for my birthday. And then I said, well, what kind of daddy do you need? She looked at her mommy and looked around the table, looked back at me and said, Mommy says, I'm not allowed to pray like this, but Jesus hears my prayers because I'm a child. I want you to be my daddy. Two days after her seventh birthday, I became her daddy. And the big joke now, my wife says, yeah, Ashley proposed to him before he, Doug proposed to me. But last year, she wanted some daddy-daughter time, and she wanted to go with me to the office. It was closed that day, but wanted to go with Daddy for a few minutes. So I went, and I put her in our prayer center, our prayer room. I said, Ashley, the music's on. The worship goes 24-7. It's there. I want you to stay here, and I'll be back. I'm going to lock you in the offices because nobody's here. I'm going to go down the hall to the boys' room. Is that okay? Yes, Daddy, that's great. She was worshiping and singing, having a great time. And I guess I took too long. So I came back down the hall of the office building. I hear my little girl at the front the front double door, glass doors of my office, going, Daddy, Daddy, somebody help me, somebody help me. I ran in the back door, come down the hall. She comes running down the hall, grabs my legs, and goes, Honey, what's wrong, what's wrong? Daddy, I thought you forgot me. I said, Honey, I would never forget you. Daddy, I know you wouldn't do it on purpose, but I thought you forgot I was here. And besides, boys don't take as long to go to the bathroom. (laughs) But when she said that, I realized... What well, God is speaking to you and speaking to me, He is speaking to us and saying, "I haven't forgot the promise I've called over your life. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't forgotten you. God knows exactly what He's promised you. The word He's spoken to you, and God's word will come to pass. Lord, let Your word come true that You have spoken over my life, over your life, over us as a corporate generation." A multi-generational anointing being released for this prophetic generation to prepare the way for revival and the coming of the Lord. But it's going to take those who are willing to give their lives to something greater than themselves, to love God. Because God, in every moment in time in history, in the annals of history, God always looks for young men and women that He calls unto Himself, that He can appoint and commission who will live a life of courage and character and conviction beyond the norm of the day. He's not asking for the majority. He's asking for those individuals who say, Lord, I make myself available to you. And I don't know how. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have. What God is saying, give me you. Offer yourself that living sacrifice. Know that my word is true. And I will do a work in you and through you that you could never do on your own. That's why I'm pinching myself all the time. I've never arrived. I always feel like, God, I still don't get a clue what I'm doing with my life. I'm every day still the same simple obedience. And every day, Lord, I want to make myself available again to you today. Let me just read to you a couple of things, and I want to pray. Because I felt like the Lord kind of took us a different direction in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not about our good works if it's in our works alone, because good works are dead works. There's a whole lot of people wanting to do good works in the, in, without the name of Christ, even as Christians. But I, don't, I feel like we don't need to dumb down Jesus. When I was, being on, I was on Fox News with a political pundit and... Uh, expert, so-called expert, and uh, the head of the Atheists in Houston prior to the response at Reliant Stadium that we were honored to be a part of and helped to facilitate and mobilize for in in Houston. And I was on Fox News the night before, and I didn't know I was going to be thrown into this kind of pack of wolves situation. They, oh, can you come and talk about the response? Sure. I get there, and I find out who else is on with me. But the Lord knew how to orchestrate it just right, because I wanted to make sure I loved on those who opposed us and come with an opposite spirit. But the bottom line was, they asked the atheist, the head of the atheist, "Why do you have a problem with them praying?" And they said this. We don't have a problem with them praying. It's just the fact that they're praying to Jesus. And you see, the issue isn't about praying. The issue isn't about us gathering. The issue is about that precious name. And in the book of Acts, it was the same exact thing as it is 2,000 years later that it's about that name. You can do what you, you can pray, you can talk, you can sing, you can do whatever you do, but just don't use that name, Jesus. But the reality is there's no salvation, healing, liberation or deliverance without the name of Jesus. So I'm not about dumbing down who Jesus is. Jesus said, if I be high and lifted up, I would draw all men unto himself, myself." So I want to make sure I present him in a way, though that people recognize it's not about religion. It really is about this awesome relationship with him. I was debating one time. I got a phone call from a professor at Tehran University a couple of years ago, arguing with me because I was doing some live television broadcast by satellite into, into Iran at the time. Calls in and starts arguing with me and trying to debate, and I just don't debate. And I said, you're a philosophy professor, so technically you're supposed to have a love for truth, correct? That's right. I said, so if the truth were presented to you, you, you would accept it? Absolutely. And so to make a long story short, it's about basically said, look, if you really love the truth, then all you have to do is this with me. And if you say you don't believe anyway, just say it as if you had a love for truth. Jesus, if you are really who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. Well, I don't believe. Well, you, I'm just saying if it's the truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the truth, and you say you're a lover of truth, I'm, all I'm asking you to do is to say, Jesus, if you are who you say you are. I won't even go into all the details of a person who was going to commit suicide, who prayed seven, eight hours a day as a Muslim in Iran, who today helps overseas to oversee sees 500 underground churches by watching that TV network that was being satellite in. She was going to commit suicide, was angry because her mom was going to commit suicide with her, who was bedridden, called uh, the program... And started arguing with the Iranian Christian pastor that uh, does the network. And, uh, and said, my mom came to the Lord, to, uh, gave herself as a Christian. And I was gonna, we are going to commit suicide. And, and now she won't be with me in eternity and with Allah because, because she's a Christian now. And just started cursing out this, this Iranian pastor. And so he ends up ministering to her and says, look, if you're going to commit suicide tomorrow anyway, why don't you do this? Give Jesus a week and pray. Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. She goes, I'm going to do it just because I'm going to prove you wrong. And she did it. The next morning she wakes up and about passes out because she sees her mom who's been bedridden with an incurable disease is now up cooking and singing. She goes, mom, what are you doing? And her mom, didn't, what am I doing? And faints. She gave her life to the Lord, and they obviously didn't commit suicide, and I've had the pleasure of meeting with them personally. 500 underground church leaders coming across the border near Iran, meeting with us for two weeks as they shared their faith. They're not afraid. They said, there's nothing to be afraid of. The girl you saw on television was shot and killed, that little teenage girl, in those peaceful demonstrations, was one of the members of one of the underground churches. You see, what is it that we're afraid of if we lift up the name of Jesus, he is more than able to present himself. He just wants us to present him. We don't have to intellectualize form. We don't have to try to make some pontificate form. Just be who God's called us to be. People aren't drawn to institution, they're drawn to an incarnation of Christ in and through us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. What is it? Your works? No, it's Christ in you and that it ultimately brings glory to your Father in heaven. Amen? A.W. Tozer, in his gift of prophetic insight, and that's what God's calling this prophetic generation to. What God says to the church at any given time period depends altogether upon her moral and spiritual condition and upon the spiritual need of the hour. Religious leaders who continue to mechanically expound The scriptures without regard to the current religious situation are no better than the scribes and the lawyers of Jesus' day who faithfully parroted the law without the remotest notion of what was going on around them spiritually. The prophets never made that mistake nor wasted their efforts in that manner. They invariably spoke to the condition of the people of their times. God is calling you out of that place of the wilderness of what others have labeled you to be and say it's time to come forth To know that God's word over you is true it shall come to pass it's because he's already spoken over you individually and corporately over a generation so as you walk in obedience with him he will empower you by his commission his authority, his incarnation over you that when you walk and do and speak in his name that his manifest presence and the kingdom and authority, the authority of the kingdom of heaven is with you it's nothing we have to put on, it's who we are in him I get a thing called the Kairos Journal by intel, Christian intellects, but who really understand the difference between institution and incarnation. And the head of Kairos Journal said this, Through the years, my wife and I have worked on what are commonly thought to be influential sectors of society. She and the media and I in the corporate world. In our careers and travels, we have witnessed a dramatic decline in influence of the church and accordingly in the spiritual and moral vitality of our culture. He says that um, We have had the growing sense that the hope of a people and and of democracy lies not in elected officials, entrepreneurs, military leaders, academicians, or broadcast personalities. It is based on the faithfulness of her Christian pastors. One such pastor was Andre uh, Trunkme who served a small Protestant church in southern France during the Second World War. Largely because of his preaching and example, the village of Chambon became the haven for Jews escaping Nazi persecution. Many have heard of William Wilberforce's efforts in Parliament in, to abolish the British slave trade. At the age of 19, as many of you already know and have seen the movie Amazing Grace, at the age of 19, he was being groomed to become the part, to become the prime minister of Great Britain one day. He never became prime minister, but his legacy has lived far beyond the names of every prime minister that most of us can't even name because he lived for a cause greater than himself, a voice in his generation of courage and character and conviction that did not acquiesce to the pressures and the mores of the day, but he stood by a deeper conviction and a consecration to the Lord. And it was two weeks prior to his death that twice on the House of Commons that it was pronounced on the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Two things he lived for. One was to see civility in Great Britain again. And number two, primarily above all, was to see a respect for humanity through the abolition of slavery. And that's what he gave his life for. And by the time prior to death, twice on the House of Commons. He never became prime minister, but the cause he lived for came to pass. But many people haven't heard about the one who was a greater influence in his life. Thank God for the John Venns, who was a preacher. He was inspired and fortified by a preacher named John Venn, who brought conviction in Wilberforce's life. Who knows that hitchhiker? Who knows that person that that you let your light so shine for and they see Christ in you and draws glory to the Father in heaven because of the way you live. Who knows what that person will do as a result of your example, of your courage, of your willingness to live for more than yourself, to love God and love others more than yourself. That's the kind of generation God's looking for right now. That's the kind of generation that God's saying in this time in history, because time like light makes things manifest. Give it enough time Given enough time, the true character of an individual is brought to light. And during times of difficulty and crisis, you'll find who the real heroes are. Ten years ago, on 9-11, everyday heroes emerged. People you may not have known their names before that day. Here, throughout New England, on the plane on the way to Pennsylvania in, at the Pentagon in New York City. Everyday heroes, firemen and police officers and everyday citizens rushing in to rescue the perishing. People giving their blood and giving, and giving of their help to help those who needed help. Everyday heroes emerge in the midst of crisis. We are in a crisis, critical moment in the history of this world. But in the midst of all that darkness, there's a light that's, that's coming forth. That light is a generation filled with the incarnation of Christ, those living sacrifices who've given their time, talent, resources on the altar of the Lord and saying, God, let your word come true as you have spoken in my life over my generation. God, help me to become what you've called me to be. I make myself available to you and to walk in simple obedience with you, which is the highest form of worship. Let me worship you with my life, God. And when that begins to happen across this room, if John Wesley can say, give me a hundred men who fear, no, who, who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and we can turn and change the world, well, we've got more than a hundred people here tonight. If we fear nothing but God, don't fear man, fear God. Fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. Don't hate your enemies. Don't hate men. Don't hate the, the issues that we're dealing with. We hate the things that those sins do to men. We hate the act of sin, but we don't hate people. We love them just like Christ loved us and gave his life for us. He also wants us to give our lives that they might come to know him in Christ living through us. Give us a hundred men. Give us a hundred people tonight in Boston who fear nothing but sin and hate nothing, fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin and we will change the world. Antioch again, Is that just a good slogan? I don't believe so. I believe that the prayers that every one of you have prayed, the words that have been spoken, are ready to come true as God has spoken. Scientifically speaking, every word you speak never falls to the ground. That means the prayers of Jesus 2,000 years ago are still being prayed over us. The prayers of revivalists past, the prayers of Charles Finney, the prayers of Edwards and and Finney and and, uh, and, and all the great revivalists and the great awakenings, those prayers prayed over New England and prayed over this country are still bombarding heaven because sound waves never fall to the ground. It's perpetual coming before the presence of God. Every word spoken over your personal life, every word spoken over your family, every word spoken over your generation is for this moment. It's not just an individual anointing. I believe it's a corporate anointing that's coming upon this generation right now. Available with simple obedience. Together, we will see Antioch again. We will see a great awakening. And what greater place but right here? Why did God speak to me in the context of emptying out all the money I had at that time to sow into New England, out of Boston. Why did I go ahead and get on that plane from New York City to come to Boston to do a prayer journey on the campuses of this city? I had no clue why then, when I walked this, the, the corridors of Harvard and I walked around with his Indonesian students. Why did God bring you from the country you're from? Why did God bring you from the different parts of the region or this country to come to this time, to this place at this time? It's not just about your job. It's not about going to the particular class you're going to or the school you're going to. It's because God has a greater cause. That just seems, that's just part of the journey. But God has a greater cause than what you think it is because it's about destiny and it's about your moment because God hasn't forgotten his promise over you. You may think he has. God, are you going to hear my prayer? God hasn't forgotten God still hears, God still sees, God still knows, and you're walking into a corporate destiny for the greatest outpouring of God's spirit you've ever been a part of. He's not forgotten you. He's not left you alone. His word is still true over you. And even though there have been times that you never understood the love of a father, the Lord says to you, that's my girl says to you, that's my boy. It doesn't matter what man has said. What has God spoken over you? Would you stand with me? I'm not finished. I'm just going to quit. I want you to say with me as you're it to God, what is it that you need God to do in your personal life? And what is it you want to be a part of that's bigger than you about destiny here in Boston, here in New England that will touch the nations of the world? And as part of that prophetic generation. I want you to say, just like 2 Chronicles 6.17, as Solomon said, remember you're far more valuable than that temple that he was dedicating, and nonetheless God still heard his prayer, saw the spirit of humility, and literally let the fire of the Holy Spirit consume the sacrifice placed on the altar and glory filled the temple. How much more important is your life? in Solomon's temple. You are the living temple of the Holy Spirit purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. You are the living sacrifices offered of your time, talent, resources for the sake of the kingdom of God for a time such as this. This is our time. This is our time. Would you make yourself available to him? Would you walk in simple obedience every day simply by just dying to self? And now let's declare it to the Lord just like Solomon. In a moment we're going to say it together. We're going to say, let your word come true as you have spoken it, God. Would you say to me? Let your word come true that you have spoken, God. Again, let your word come true that you have spoken, God. Again, let your word come true that you have spoken, God. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that tonight? We're walking into a corporate sense of of destiny. It's beyond us. All we have to walk in availability and simple obedience. It's not about us. It's about surrender to him. Father, I declare over my brothers and sisters right now. God, even as there have been things that have been distractions all around us, Lord, and the first city ever created in history that we know biblically was Enoch and it was a it was a place where Cain had to go in a land of Nod, of wandering and distraction. His own city after his own firstborn as a place to keep God out. But God, we're asking you that we would be a city set on a hill, that we would not let the distractions of the city distract us from the call and destiny of God. But God, we are declaring tonight that you and you alone are Lord over us that you're calling forth a people of destiny, a people, O oh God, called, that you've called out. You, as a heavenly king, have commissioned, and we count it a privilege and an honor to serve you, God, to walk in availability and obedience to you, God. God, do a work in us that only you can do. We need your divine intervention, your divine incarnation, your divine authority and influence in and through our lives, oh God. Let your light so shine in and through us that it draws others close to you. Let your word come true. Let your word come true. Let your word come true in Boston, in Massachusetts, in America, in this generation. The enemy is trying to battle for the very soul of a generation. But we declare, God, your word over this generation is true. Your word shall be fulfilled. Your word, your word, your word, your word is true. Release us now, God. Send us to the four corners of the world from Boston, Massachusetts to the four corners of the world. in our generation and everyone said Amen Father I agree right now according to your nature, character, spirit and word over all that you have done over us and brooded over us these last couple of days you're not finished with us Lord you're taking us deeper deeper in consecration, higher in expectation our hope is still in you Lord and we are part of something far bigger than ourselves this is our moment to agree with you and to be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.